On this episode of Doctor Who's That, we talk about Husky Lincoln, the Kool-Aid Meyer Beast, and Jaunty Sea Jazz. Welcome back to Doctor Who's That, the show where we introduce a Doctor Who newbie to the show, lest he be chased through space and time to be forced to watch it. This is Sean Gleason, your Doctor Who expert. Joining me, as always, is Andy. This is Andy, your modern Doctor Who fan, and uh, I'm the dumb one. And Bay. It is I, the Meyer Bay. And joining us this week, we have Julia. Hi, I'm Julia, and I'm going to be the dumb one today because I didn't think of a witty introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So today we are watching The Chase. Uh, Some working titles for The Chase included The Pursuers and the ever-creative The Daleks 3. (laughs) (laughs) Off to a good start. Yeah. Bit of a giveaway, although I guess they wouldn't have seen the episode titles. Yeah. So the uh, story aired in May and June of 1965. And a little bit with our State of the Union. By this point, the budget for the show had just about doubled. And so the episodes now had a budget of a whopping 2,500 pounds each. Episode one here cost 6,000 pounds. But it's normal for episode ones to cost a bit more. This is usually why they like to do six-parters, because the costs for subsequent episodes got a bit cheaper as the story went on. Same sets and costumes mostly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Shawnee, I'm going to be the dumb American and ask for a, a bit of a conversion. Oh, I gosh. mean, we're not, only, we're not only talking pounds to dollars, but like... $19.65 to $20.20, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't have a great sense of how much that would be. Like 100 doubloons or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bay, that would be about $62,000 today per episode. So, yeah, still not all that much when you consider that they're making a TV show here. For $62,000. you have got plenty mm-hmm. of people to pay, plenty of sets to set up. Yeah, but wow. yeah. That really says more about how much the budget was. Yeah. So since six-parters are also more difficult to write and tend to have more padding, they decided this season to avoid them unless the Daleks were involved or alien bugs for some reason. I don't know why that only six parts. <laughs> But Daleks were the big money makers, and props already existed, as did music for it. I guess it feels like more of a spectacle. Yeah, exactly. And almost immediately after the Dalek invasion of Earth, 
Terry Nation was commissioned for another Dalek story. For some reason, though, despite having commissioned this new story so quickly, the BBC once again gave away some of their Daleks, this time to the Bellevue Zoo Park for children to play on, and once again, they had to request these Dalek flops back. Oh my God, stop loaning out your Daleks. <laughs> they also had to borrow some of the Daleks from the Dalek movie that had been made. Reappropriate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the movie had been filmed by this point, but it hadn't yet been released. So this marked the debut of those movie Daleks. And those are Daleks that were mostly used in the background. When Nation wrote this story, being Terry Nation, he decided instead of coming up with an overall story just to make a story in the same style as Keys of Marinus, except with Daleks. Oh, boy. <laughs> he also decided that he'd make the Daleks a comparable threat to the Doctor by giving them time and space travel using what the script referred to as a Dardis. No. Hmm. Yeah. Stop now, that. Now, did they... Is that detailed anywhere? Like, do they do they say what it means? Nope. Aside he from just, the obvious? Okay. Yeah. I guess it's Dalek and relative time in space. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was yeah, thinking. Tardis like, actually means something. It's an yeah, acronym. It I mean, it is dis- it is displacing da- Daleks, so... Uh, <laughs> Who knows? But, like, where's the time? <laughs> yeah. But Terry Nation wasn't big on this whole Dalek thing taking up time that he could use to uh, work on other projects and time that he could use to swim in that pool filled with Dalek money. So instead of really, you know, writing a script... He submitted a shopping list of fun ideas. A lot of things he just wanted to see what he could get away with throwing in. Oh my God. Some of these ideas that he came up with involved going to ancient Egypt, meeting with invisible people, a mist world for some reason. And all these things <laughs> he, put in, he put in a drawer and said, you know what? Next time they ask me to do a Dalek story, I'll, I'll save those till then. And the mist world would probably save on sets. Yeah. There was one idea that he came up with that Verity Lambert said, no, absolutely no way are we doing this. Terry Nation agreed. And then he put it in the script anyway. And that's episode four, which we'll be talking about next time. Well, didn't you say that Verity was, was she on the way out or is she already gone? No, she's, yeah, she's leaving at the end of the production block. Oh my gosh. So this was like... (laughs) I know you've got one foot out the door. Here's the thing that you didn't want. Yep, exactly. She also didn't really like the Iridians or the Meyer Beast from the first couple parts of this serial. But again, Nation just kept them in any way because he's the creator of the Daleks. He could do what he wants, I guess. (sighs) And for some reason, he also decided to try to make the Daleks comical in this one. So I guess this is kind of the beginning of that. I mean, because, like, that is sort of something that they've retained. I mean, like, there's always, like, some, even if it's mild, comedic element to them, I've found. At times. Yeah, you you could have a bit of Dalek humor at times. But, yeah, this is really just where Dalek humor started. And then mm. they cut it out for 
quite a while, but yeah. I mean, the Daleks are always let's let's face it they're they're kind of cute looking you know like you know that they're pure evil but you can't help but like them and the way that they say stuff and and everything else so i think there's something inherently kind of comedic about the daleks anyway i mean they basically look like evil robotic baby yodas right why why (laughs) why (laughs) this story was meant to conclude the second production block and the second season But then nine more episodes were added, so four of those would make up the new season ender, and the rest were held over to be the start of season three. So some important people involved here. When looking for a director, they considered bringing back Chris Barry, who had done some before, including the good episodes of the first Dalek story. But inexplicably, they decided to bring back Richard Martin. So, welcome Mm -hmm. back, Richard Martin. Luckily, this will be Richard Martin's final contribution to Doctor Who. That explains some of the shots we get. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The music was done by Dudley Simpson. They had originally hired someone named Max Harris, but he was unavailable, so they brought in Simpson at the last minute. And Simpson decided to write in the style of Max Harris. And at least one source calls the result a complete mess. Hmm. It is wild. It is wacky. Yeah. <laughs> you, at the at the beginning of each episode, you feel like you're in Sex in the City. It's got this kind of like <laughs> jazz piano thing. And at times there's almost like a not a sad trombone exactly, but it uh, you do kind of get like a womp womp yeah. at at different points and it is it is Bizarre. strange. Yes. Yeah. Nonsensical one could say. I feel I feel like it's Almost always some variant of jazz. <laughs> yeah. You know, like there's like the Dalek jazz, the spacefaring jazz, the jaunty sea jazz. Like, I don't mind it per se, but it feels like I'm in like some NPR segment instead of yeah. watching Doctor yeah. Who. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely minded it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did seem jarring to me, but it's old. It was yeah. the 60s. Right. You know. It was a different time. Yes. yes, it was. <laughs> My expectations allowed for it to be weird. <laughs> so the design was done by Ray Cusick, who, of course, did the original Dalek design. And the first thing that he did was get rid of most of the changes that had been made to his design for the last Dalek serial, including those silly radio dishes that the Daleks had. I was going to ask about that because that was, they made a big deal about it in the Dalek Invasion yeah. of Earth. And Cusick looked at those, said, well, these are dumb and just got rid of them. I respect that. <laughs> I, I kind of do, but then it begs the question, like, did Dalek technology just get better? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so since they um, were taking Daleks back from various places, they didn't actually make any new Daleks for this. So that helped save a little bit of money. So our cast members are mostly the usual collection of British actors with tons of TV credits. 
A couple of the notables are John Scott Martin, who here is making his first of many appearances as a Dalek operator. This is a role that he would hold until their final classic series appearance in 1988, which makes him the longest-serving Dalek operator. Hmm. He'd end up working on all Dalek stories between now and then, except for one, when he was cast in a play and couldn't leave London for the location filming. I hope they let him keep a Dalek. (laughs) He'd ended up working with every classic series Doctor and um, worked in total on 76 Doctor Who episodes, putting him just outside the top 10 in number of appearances. This isn't, however, his first appearance on the show as he had previously played a Zarbi. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of the Zarbi, one of the other actors here was Peter Purvis. I knew it. I knew it. His weird speech style sounded he hadn't actually he didn't end up getting cast as a zarbi but he was one of the people who had auditioned for one and they kind of put him on the back burner until a role later well one of the iridians sounds very monoptra-esque <laughs> yes um, i yeah. agree yeah there were very strong fish moth connections i was yeah feeling. <laughs> Peter Purvis played Morden Dill, that random guy on the Empire State Building in oh, episode no. three. <laughs> that was that oh. was apparently uh, Julia's favorite part. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Purvis is a pretty big name, so a little bit about him. He had originally planned to teach, but ended up going into acting. He had a number of connections to this show. He'd previously worked with Jacqueline Hill's husband, and he had spent a while as a dancer, hence why he was almost a Zarbi, but he wanted to learn TV acting. And he thought that working with somebody like William Hartnell would give him good experience, so he was pretty keen to end up working on this show. He did a lot of TV work as well, He'd eventually end up working primarily as a TV presenter on the TV show Blue Peter, which is the world's longest-running children's TV show. And he'd end up on there for about 10 years between 1967 and 1978. Purvis is somebody who we'll see again on the show fairly soon, in a much better role than Morden Dill. (laughs) (laughs) So... I guess from here, we might as well get into the actual story of The Chase. So we'll begin with episode one, The Executioners. And a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff with this episode. Martin's luck in filming, or perhaps his lack of planning, starts right away with this episode. The filming of it was delayed due to a missing prop, which some sources say was the TARDIS. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> so if all the it things does to disappear forget, a right? lot, you know, yeah. I can sort of see how. Is this kind of why we, we get the um, lava lamp kaleidoscope? <laughs> well, I think that kaleidoscope is supposed to be sort of the void that the TARDIS travels through. Oh, sure. I mean, it's a yeah. very cool effect. And I was like, I don't think we've ever seen this before on the yeah. show. 
No, I think they just wanted to do a cool effect. And yeah, this is the first time we see something like that. I like the lava lamp description. I have written down that it's kind of like a kaleidoscope thing. (laughs) Yeah. And we get that like little jazz solo too. I am redundant around here. Oh, nonsense. Come and sit down and talk to me. I am a useless person. So in the TARDIS, Vicky is very bored and she's pretty much annoying everyone. She's <laughs> whistling while the doctor's trying to work until he just tells her to buzz off. She goes and bothers Ian while he's reading monsters from outer space. This does not seem like the kind of book that Ian would read. <laughs> eh, I mean, he's met enough monsters, so I guess he's into it now. <laughs> And she finally goes to Barbara and starts complaining about being useless and redundant and knocks over all of Barbara's stuff onto the dress that Barbara's trying to make for Vicky. It did kind of look like she was having tea time, though, while she was making the dress. Right. Which might not have been the best idea, honestly. I also didn't understand because we already know that the TARDIS can fashion them clothing for whatever time period that they want to go to. I guess Barbara, just in her spare time, makes people clothes? <laughs> makes people clothes. That, that, that's not what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Makes clothes for people. <laughs> well, I mean, she could be there making Dalek clothes. You never know. <laughs> A Dalek cozy. Yes. You know, I think that everybody's just sitting around and doing whatever they want while the doctor is messing with this machine that he picked up at the Space Museum. Speaking of that machine, it starts beeping horribly and loudly. Everybody rushes in and starts asking, what's that dreadful noise? What exactly is that machine anyway? Especially the audience. Yes. After babbling through some science talk, Vicky translates, and we understand that it's basically a time television. It's just a juxtaposition of the sonic rectifier and the linear amplifier, (laughs) which uh, he kind of like stumbles over as well. Yes. When I first heard him say it converts notions of light energy into electrical impulses, I was like, okay made-up word notions aside, it sounds like a solar panel makes light into energy. I have those on my roof. But I guess notions meaning like... Oh, I thought he said neutrons. He did. Oh. It did. It was it neutrons? was light neutrons, which makes just it's as much sense, thing. right? Like, so mm-hmm. don't worry about it. Yeah, the explanation afterwards was like, it definitely was not real physics, but it no, sounded it's... like a solar panel at first to me. <laughs> it's it's, it's garbage. Panel. They throw some Niels Bohr at you so that you're caught off guard and then hit you with some pseudoscience babble about how light imprints and records every moment in history. Now that said, uh, but the machine itself looks great, right? Like it looks really cool. Like it's like this circular kind of like Stargate looking 1970s alien Nostromo Cheerio thing. And it's great. I remember him bringing some equipment back from the space museum, but I don't remember that Stargate. <laughs> right, right. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah no, it's, well, it was the big thing that Ian asked, what is that doctor that we didn't get to see last time? Right. So, yeah, we get to see his time TV now. Chekhov's time TV. Yeah. <laughs> 
And so they all get a turn looking at something on the time TV. And, you know, doctor asks Ian for an event in history. And Ian gives him 1863, Pennsylvania. And on the time TV, we get to see Lincoln give the Gettysburg Address. Which, on the one hand, Ian's a fan of American history. Cool. I like that. I also thought it was really cool. Like, I'm still really with it at this point. Um, So really with the episode, like they're doing like this really cool effect, I thought, where they kind of um, even when it's like in close up of the pictures on the time TV, they have this kind of occasional like flickering feedback effect to remind you that it's on a TV. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah. In one of the rare bits of phrase that I have for Richard Martin, he has been good with these weird special effects like that like Mm -hmm. when he had melting doors and you know weird things with bombs and stuff like that he's good with those weird effects he's bad with everything else yes (laughs) is it just me or is abe a little husky yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes we have an idea which may be absurd you shall write a play of Falstaff in love. <laughs> Does not that fire your imagination? Oh, oh, oh a happy idea, your majesty. <laughs> yes. Away with you, Will, to your pen. Oh. <laughs> so when it's Barbara's turn to choose something, we get to see Queen Elizabeth meeting with Shakespeare, asking him to write a play about Falstaff in love. And some other guy giving him the idea to write Hamlet. Now, Falstaff in Love... So, Falstaff would have already shown up in the Henry plays, right? So, yeah. Falstaff in Love, is this a Merry Wives of Windsor that she's Probably. seeding? Okay. I would think so. I really liked her laugh in this episode. It was what I would call tittering, you know, just <laughs> like very... It was like, it was kind of a cute little scene, <laughs> if albeit mostly pointless. Yeah, I don't know how Barbara, how on earth she like was able to dial into that particular moment, though. It's not as well documented, <laughs> I guess we could say. This brings up other problems with like the time television <laughs> in that they give like such broad yeah. geographical locations. And, like Ian gave a whole day, you know. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on in Pennsylvania that day. Yeah, he could have just gotten a farmer. <laughs> My um, thought about that to explain it is that if there were lots of users of these machines or uh, users of this particular machine or some other database to correlate it with, that it, it would work like a Google result. Basically, whatever's most popular given the search terms <laughs> would show up. It would always be porn, though, I feel like. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, that's probably like, very If it was accurate. based on popularity, like, I guarantee, like, the Zorflaxians are always like, let's see Abe Lincoln naked. Like, after, <laughs> right after the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I felt like it was like, they were, like, trying to cheat on the whole educational show thing. Yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> like uh, I, so I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see it made heavy use of in the upcoming episodes or not, because it's certainly, like, an easy way way for them to like check that little box off right it's like well let's just have them tune into some random historical event that they don't even have to go to and then we'll throw robots into the rest of the episode yeah either it'll go into heavy rotation or it'll never be heard from again that is exactly what i was thinking
joking. I feel, <laughs> I feel like the last thing in this episode, or sorry, in this serial, is going to be the destruction yes. of their time television, <laughs> which it. makes me very mad because <laughs> it seems like... A, this is one of the things about this particular serial. There are some like really interesting ideas that I think were just kind of like thrown on the table, and then it's like, okay, let's keep going. It's a really powerful artifact in terms of like strategic value. I could see why it would ruin a lot of plots yeah. by making them just too easy. Well, it kind of messes with this plot. It's it's well, we'll get to it, but yeah. So, in the original script, the Shakespeare scene was supposed to be Shakespeare and his wife discussing allowing Francis Bacon to borrow his name to write some plays. <laughs> I feel like the the one they decided to go with was uh, more surprising and, you know, something I hadn't heard of before. Vicky, I had no idea you knew about the Beatles. Of course I know about them. I've been to their memorial theater in Liverpool. Well, what do you think of them, Vicky? Well, they're marvelous, but I didn't know they played classical music. Classical music? <clears throat> get with it, Barbara, get with it. Uh, styles change, styles change. And then it's Vicky's turn. And like any swinging space orphan would do, she chose some classical music, by which I mean the Beatles. That will never be not funny by the way, just like <laughs> sci-fi shows referring to rock and roll as classical music. <laughs> so here we see the Beatles playing Ticket to Ride, and we get to see Ian dancing like a science teacher. Now, hindsight is twenty twenty two. She was like, I don't recognize Ticket to Ride. Oh, really? On the Beatles 1 album? Never mind. Ian's surprised that she knows about the Beatles. And she talks about their memorial theater in Liverpool and, you know, how they're marvelous. But she didn't know they played classical music. Womp, 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 womp. 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 So the original idea for this was that they were going to actually get the Beatles to come in as old men performing their 50th anniversary concert. That just makes me sad now. <laughs> yeah, that would have been so cool. The Beatles were really into this idea because apparently they were fans of the show. But there are a couple stories about why this didn't happen. Some say that Brian Epstein ended up nixing the concept. Others say that they were just too busy at the time. This was while they were filming Help. And the day that they were going to film that scene was the day that they were actually finishing writing the song Help, which they were set to record the next day. Mm. So it probably wouldn't have worked out either way. But they wanted to find a um, clip of the Beatles to play. And so they turned to the show Top of the Pops. And that's when they learned that Top of the Pops was pretty much wiped right after every broadcast. So eventually they were able to get a hold of the clip that we see here. And the interesting thing about this is this is the only surviving clip of the Beatles from Top of the Pops. Hmm. And there's also a lot of rights issues with this. So it's only available on DVD and streaming in the UK and Australia. So if you're at home oh. planning to watch this story and you stream it on BritBox, you're not going to see this Beatles clip. 
that would be why because for just a moment here i was pretending like i knew what you were talking about but i didn't actually <laughs> remember the beatles <gasps> oh my gosh yeah i watched it uh on the the version that shawnee had supplied and the beatles are in there i watched again today on streaming just to like refresh my mm-hmm. mind about what had happened and it's totally absent yeah so it really depends on what form you're watching it in, whether you'll see the Beatles clip or not. What's that awful noise? Yeah. I beg your pardon, awful noise? Is there a way to talk about my singing? No, Doctor, not that awful noise. The other one, listen to it. But anyway, after this... They're about to materialize, so they leave the machine and uh, they start to, you know, go look at the scanner. Everything's okay. They exit the TARDIS onto the planet Iridius, where Barbara complains that it's hot because, hey, two suns. So I guess they're on Tatooine. That is the first thing that I thought is like, I'm not going over there. It's far too rocky. (laughs) So, uh, Vicky of course, decides that, hey, there might be something to explore on the other side of that hill, and she goes running off. Ian follows Vicky after the doctor gives him a TARDIS magnet, something which we've never heard of before, and I'm not sure if we ever hear of again. <laughs> this, this also felt like a throwaway object, but yeah. we need it for the plot here. <laughs> so apparently the doctor just has this thing that will help them find the TARDIS if necessary. It also seems like it should be a compass, not a magnet, but yeah, that's just me. I guess a compass is a magnet. Mm. So Ian follows Vicky up as she runs up that hill in an unfortunately very static and excruciatingly long shot. But eventually they get to the top of that hill and they find some sort of trail, which Ian comments it's probably blood because... Ian's aware of how their days go. Well, there are a few things here. And when I was originally watching it, I didn't take much note of it. And um, it didn't it didn't feel particularly well put together. Watching it again, I had a little bit better appreciation for it because I knew where it was going. They mentioned that the strange structures around them like look like seaweed or maybe... As if they had been men, which makes me think, oh, maybe these are sea creatures that had dried out or seaweed that had just dried up. When Vicky trips over that one thing on the ground, it's never explained what it is, but um, Ian's like, oh, what an awful smell. I was like, oh, if this is like some dead fish or crab or creature Mm -hmm. that died from under the sea and like mummified of course if you break it it's going to you know smell like a seafood market yeah so i i appreciated it more on the second watch but it is still a little tedious to get through and as they leave there's a weird tendril thing that's moving on the ground where they were <laughs> While Ian and Vicky are having their little adventure, the doctor and Barbara are lying in the sand, lazing in the sun as the doctor's humming. You know, only the British would sunbathe in full clothing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have to, otherwise they'd get burned. Yep. 
all of a sudden we hear that horrible machine humming noise. And there's a great exchange here where Barva asks, what's that awful noise? And the doctor gets very indignant saying, awful noise? That's no way to talk about my singing. And I love <laughs> Barva's response. No, not that awful noise. The other <laughs> one. <laughs> Barva goes back in the TARDIS to switch the visualizer off, and she hears Daleks! Dun, dun, dun. The operation will proceed at once. The movement scanners have located the enemy time machine, TARDIS! 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 She calls for the doctor who comes in complaining, but immediately gets very serious when he sees what's on the screen. We dissolve into the screen, into the Dalek base, where the Daleks are talking about how their time machine has been completed. They mention the enemy time machine and start chanting TARDIS in case we weren't aware exactly <laughs> what this time machine was. Apparently, the Daleks are very annoyed that the Doctor delayed their conquest of Earth. And so they're going to send an assassination group to chase him through eternity. I guess I just don't know enough about how time works exactly in this thing. Because you'd think that they would know if they were successful or not, if they had a time machine. Yeah. But... I don't, I don't know. Also, we've already established that this television can only show us things that have already happened. Yeah. Uh, right. Which makes me believe, well, it's not established whether their previous adventure at the Space Museum was before or after the point in time they are in this serial. Mm. So I wasn't quite sure if they were coming from the Dalek future, but somewhere between then and the Space Museum or further in the past, it's definitely after the invasion of Earth. So yeah, it's all wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey. <laughs> so the Daleks enter the TARDIS in an endless shot that is clearly just several Dalek cases going around in a circle. I liked it, though. I thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> it's also the smallest doorway. I'm surprised yeah. nobody got caught. <laughs> so, yeah, the doctor and Barbara realize that since the TV only picks up the past, this means the Daleks may already be here. So they have to collect Ian and the child. A ring! A ring in the sand. No, no, what? the ring in the field. What are you talking about? What's the matter? <laughs> you see, when I was very young, yeah. near where I lived there was a field. And in this field there was a ring just like that sticking out of the ground. Yeah. You see, the point was, on the other side of the hedge there was a castle. An enormous thing with a drawbridge. Mm. And... <laughs> well, go on. Well, we had this thing that if we pulled that ring, yeah. the drawbridge would come down and something oh, awful Vicky, would come up. look around you. Can you see a castle anywhere? No, but for heaven's sake, something's going to happen if we pull that thing. Well, shall I pull it or shan't I? Yes, all right. So, so we go back to Ian and the child who are just continuing wandering about. And I wrote down that we could barely hear them talk 
when, you know, they're in that ridiculously long shot of them just walking around on the sand. Sean, do you know where these were shot, by the way? Because they're clearly outdoor shots, I thought. Yeah, it was in Camber Sands in Sussex. Ian's like, it's great that it's not acid, huh? (laughs) Which really kind of bothered me. (laughs) I don't know. It's a bit of a throwback, though. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good it's a good reference to a, another serial that I didn't particularly like, but <laughs> yeah. but he is the bonehead that like almost washed his face or drank acid. I assume right. that he probably did it again, realized, <laughs> oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that, and then realized, oh, thankfully it's not acid. <laughs> While Vicky seems to be drunk or something because she's just lying in the sand saying stuff like, if you look at the suns through your fingers, you have 20 instead of 10. Yeah. <laughs> that That isn't the wackiest thing she says, though, because they find, like, this ring in the sand that she's, like, afraid that they'll pull and goes on this wild story. It's the craziest thing I think I've ever heard her say. Um, <laughs> because we already know that she's from Earth's future, And she said when she grew up, she lived near a castle, and there was a ring in the ground, and they were afraid that if they pulled the ring on the other side of the hedge, the drawbridge to the castle would come down. And I'm like, what is happening? Well, see, the castle wasn't the thing that stuck out to me, right? Because like, I'm like, she's from Earth's future, and she's talking about like, open fields it's like come on like there's not going to be any open fields or vegetation in the future well i don't mind there being a castle but wouldn't it be like a ruin or something why is the i i just i don't know something's yeah oh well we've Mm -hmm. gone back to like some cyber feudalism or something yeah it's some sort of knights of sidonia thing where everybody in the future just like you know is really into castles but they don't really know what castles are like they're just kind of like metal castles and uh, i don't know where i'm going with this (laughs) (laughs) but yeah of course ian pulls the ring despite her crazy story and it opens up a door in the sand Ian and Vicky, of course, are going to go in and check it out, because what else would they do? You know, I bet he wrote the bit about the castle just so when Ian yanked it out, he could say Excalibur. <laughs> Probably. Ugh. Mm, I think people would get that reference even without the castle thing. No, I, I think so, too. I just, I don't know. I'm trying to square the circle here. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've mentioned this before, but like, all these people have a way higher tolerance for risk than I would have in this situation, like given how much they've been through. It's just like, oh, we're on a strange planet. We've gone farther away from the TARDIS than we expected or told people we would. Let's just pull this ring after recounting a story about how it might cause something horrible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I mean, again, like, and I've said this before, I'm surprised they don't all have just like crazy huddled on the floor PTSD by this point. Like, like, oh, yeah. Right? It's like, oh, we're we're on an alien planet. Oh, there's a ring in the sand. Well, goodbye. Right? Like, that's how it (laughs) should be. Like, this is evidence of some sort of civilization. I don't want to meet them. Right. I'm not going to touch it. It's Maybe it's radioactive. Maybe it's made of poison. Uh, Goodbye. Yeah. I thought of a passage from um, the fanfic Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, (laughs) where they're talking about 
that fanfic version of Mad-Eye Moody. And to give you guys a little quote, sometimes people called Moody paranoid. Moody always told them to survive a hundred years of hunting dark wizards and then get back to him about that. Mad-Eye Moody had once worked out how long it had taken him, in retrospect, to achieve what he now considered a decent level of caution. Weighed up how much experience it had taken him to get good instead of lucky. And he had begun to suspect that most people died before they got there. Moody had once expressed this thought to Lyle, who had done some ciphering and figuring, and told him that a typical dark wizard hunter would die, on average, eight and a half times along the way to becoming paranoid. This explained a great deal, assuming Lyle wasn't lying. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, I would be a lot more paranoid in that situation. Yeah. It's like the anti-EN. Yeah. Hey, maybe it's covered yeah. in acid. Let's yank it. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be as exciting of a show if they didn't blunder into crazy adventures. Yeah. But you like you could you could write an interesting show about people who don't take crazy risks, but it would be a lot harder to write, and it wouldn't be at all the same show. And that's not the kind of thing that Terry Nation would want to write anyways. Right, right. So yeah, as one expects, pretty much as soon as they go down there, a weird tentacle closes the door, and the camera kind of shows us the Meyer Beast, except it's way too dark to see it. I kind of liked that, though. It's got that kind of Jaws thing where you don't see yeah. the shark. Yeah. You know, I, I could still imagine that he's some weird Shogoth gibbering mouther. Oh, yeah. thank you. Yes. That is what I was desperately kind of hoping for as well. Uh, I liked <laughs> they didn't show it. I liked the kind of like allusion to intelligence. And uh, I, I really wish it had stayed that way. <laughs> Back at the TARDIS, Barbara and the Doctor are calling for Vicky and Ian. And turns out they're not sure where the TARDIS is. Too bad the Doctor doesn't have that TARDIS magnet anymore, eh? Yeah, except he says that he has the directional instincts of a homing pigeon. Yeah, (laughs) which he does not. Because (laughs) later in the storm, it's very windy and they collapse. Which, that was awesome, by the way. Yes. I really love the storm. Like, <laughs> they've gotten storms really well so far <laughs> in, in this uh, in this series. Uh, but yeah, that it, it was, it was really cool. It sounded really cool. Like, the mm-hmm. wind and stuff is really well done in this episode. Yeah. So, in the morning, they're slightly covered with sand. But it turns out everything is extremely covered with sand, including the TARDIS, which is just gone. The doctor says that it probably got buried in the sandstorm, and then he sees something and pulls Barbara down. In the sand, off in the distance a bit, there's something coming up, making coughing sounds for some reason, (laughs) and it's a Dalek. I thought those were the cutest sounds. It was like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> really? I, I, yeah. I couldn't figure out what it was at first because it was just like, oh, oh, yeah. oh. I loved it myself. I also thought it was adorable. I was like, oh, he's, he's got a little dust in his whatever he's got for lungs. It makes you think back to the Dalek invasion of Earth, though, at the end of that episode at the beginning. Yeah. 
they've really tried to do a better job, I think, in these successive serials, making the Daleks more menacing. In the first one, they could only move due to, uh, what was it, static electricity on the metal floors of, mm-hmm. of Skaro yeah. uh, mm-hmm. City. But, you know, in successive encounters, we've had them you know, surface out of the water like a submarine. Now they're buried in the sand. Now they're riding over the sand like, I don't know, R2-D2 or BB-8 or something to go back to Tatooine again. <laughs> I don't know. It it made them more threatening uh, each time we've encountered them. So a bit of a funny behind-the-scenes story with this Dalek in the sand. They originally tried to film this on location instead of with the model, which is what we get in the final version. They buried one of the full Dalek casings in the sand and then realized that it was too heavy to pull out of the sand. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the model shot. So I don't know if they ever managed to get that Dalek out of there or if there's still a Dalek buried somewhere in Camber Sands. I mean, if they if they dug the hole deep enough to put it down in there, they could probably just redig the hole. They probably got it out. I promise you that that Dalek is, still has sand in it, though, somewhere. <laughs> I loved it, though. I thought it like I thought that actually the model worked really well. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't oh, yeah. Even notice it was a model. So we move on to episode two, The Death of Time. So we have some more Daleks moving around the sand looking for the TARDIS to destroy it. The Doctor realizes that they have to find the TARDIS right away, as well as Ian and Vicky. And when they turn around to go, there are some weird fish people just standing there. I couldn't help but think of the creature from the Black Lagoon. You only get a quick look at these things, but they've got fins on them. We cut to Vicky screaming as Ian tells her to run, you little fool. (laughs) (laughs) Vicky and Ian, they run right into another beast with Ian just standing there gaping at it. And Vicky tells him not to do that, you nit. So she gets revenge for that little fool, Mark. It was a cute exchange. Yes. So the Daleks are wandering around following human tracks, and they end up just coming across a random fish man and murdering him. So ding for the random fish person. And by the way, in the original script, these fish people were just hideous hunchbacks. Oh, God. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I at least give it to them for, like, making them fish people. I thought they were a little bit interesting. Hunchbacks would have been just too weird. Yeah. I just kept wondering why they haven't just dried out, right? Like, you know? Yeah. They're, like, under... They're basically... They usually live underground. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But they're, like, they're mer people, right? Like, you know, they're they're amphibious. But now they're, like, trapped on a desert planet. I'm, you know, even, even underground, like, I can't see them lasting the thousand years they they have claimed yeah. to and especially like with all that above ground wandering they're doing but you know that's just me yeah so yeah the fish people explained to barbara that this planet was once an ocean planet 
but the twin suns dried that up and pretty much everything below the waters died except for them and the mire beasts who live in slime it's it's definitely a better kind of story than the one we get with the zarbies where yeah i think it was like a moon coming close enough that the monoptra could fly back and forth from the moon this one you know like their planet's orbit is closing closer and closer to the twin stars and just drying out so like what i was saying there's there's some cool ideas in this Mm -hmm. but they're just kind of like okay (laughs) we said it let's move on yeah nation is very good at ideas he is not very good at writing those ideas to any form of execution yeah I, although I, I have to say, I really love the name Meyer Beast. Yes. Oh, yeah. They are flesh eaters. Kind of, uh, kind of shades <laughs> of fallout. Yeah, so we learned that the Meyer Beasts are invading their cities, and they are kind of blocking things out. And they're currently about to blow up one of the tunnels, which happens to be the tunnel that the doctor and Barbara's friends might have gone in. They go to stop the um, airlock to the tunnel from being exploded, but they don't really get there in time. We get to see Vicky get grabbed around the neck by a tentacle. Then an Iridian <laughs> pushes the plunger, and we see Ian and Vicky kind of doing that, you know, Star Trek shaking thing. Well, th- there was a kind of a cool effect. The tunnel explodes around them i guess well was that a was that a projection screen it looked like something like that yeah i think it they did that projection thing again with them standing in front of it just shaking a bit as the tunnel is supposed to be falling apart around them so yeah they get knocked down and ian's passed out and we see vicky there and there's always been a question here if you know, Maureen O'Brien is just laughing hysterically, or if that's Vicky who's just in hysterics after being in an explosion. But she eventually tries to revive Ian, and when she can't, she goes to try to find the doctor and get some help, notably stepping on one of the Meyer Beast's tentacles along the way. I see. Well, we're very grateful for your hospitality, but I must warn you, the Daleks are right on top of us. And I don't want either you or your people involved in any of this dangerous business. If they knew, you've given us shelter, they'll show no mercy. No matter. So the doctor and Barbara get taken to one of the beast-free zones in the city. And he kindly warns the Iridians that the Daleks are here. And he doesn't want to get them involved because the Daleks will just murder them. I actually thought this was like... We've talked about the evolution of the Doctor over time. Mm-hmm. Julia was on our first serial where they, they go back to uh, the Cave of Skulls and everything. And, you mm-hmm. know, the Doctor almost murders a guy. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very different Doctor than we've seen in, in uh, yeah. that episode. He's changed a lot from season one to two where... Mm-hmm. Before getting involved with these people, he wants them to know what the dangers are. I thought it was a pretty fair warning, yeah. And the Iridians are like, that's cool. You need food, rest, and help. We'll provide it. So everything looks like it's coming up good for them. 
Meanwhile, the Daleks have found where the TARDIS is buried, and they come up with the plan to capture some Iridians, use them to dig the TARDIS free, and then destroy the TARDIS. I don't know if they ever use that little gyroscopic seismograph or, <laughs> or whatever it's called, uh, but I really liked that prop. I guess because the Daleks don't have as useful and flexible limbs as humanoid species, they have to rely on either their own machinery or manipulating other species to do work like digging out the TARDIS. So mm-hmm. being away from home where they don't have as much of, of their machinery, yeah, that's, that's kind of harder for them to survive and do tasks. We know after the invasion of Earth, I mean, like enslaving people mm-hmm. to do your dirty work, that's totally the Dalek way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back in the Iridian City... The doctor's eating while Barbara's yelling at him for just sitting there and eating. And he puts Barbara in her place, telling her that he has faith in Ian's infallible sense of self-preservation. <laughs> and just continues eating because, you know, that's what the doctor really wants to do. Well, you do kind of get a sense that he is worried, though. Yeah. You know, after she's... He, he urges her to take a rest... Um, but then, you know, he's definitely concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the same sort of thing that we saw way at the beginning of the program, where he'd just be like, ah, that Chesserman, he could just go and die. (laughs) Right. Then one of the Iridians, Malson, comes in and tells the doctor that the Daleks have communicated with them and told them that they have to hand over the doctor and his friends or their city will be destroyed. And the doctor knows that this is true and tells them. And so he just offers, all right, we'll leave and, you know, won't put you through any trouble. But Malson says, oh, no, you're our prisoners now. The elders are going to discuss it. They might turn you over. Remember that help we offered? Sorry. Yeah, that's not the deal. If we let you go, they'll defo destroy this city. Yeah. <laughs> So Vicky's crawling around bits of city. She climbs up into the sand and just happens to climb up right by where the TARDIS is. She sees the Daleks. She sees that the TARDIS has been uncovered. She sees their slave Iridians. And of course, once the TARDIS has been uncovered, the Dalek declares the Iridians to be worthless, inferior creatures and has them killed. So... Ding, ding for a couple of Iridians. That's three. These are the these are the Daleks we know. Like, there's no no humor here. I really I liked I liked it. I mean, it was pretty. It was surprisingly cold uh, for for the show. Uh, But yeah, I thought that was pretty metal. Mm -hmm. As as many foibles as you know, we've already discussed with Terry Nation. I thought this was kind of a cool way to do it because. Vicky, in our last serial, saw the Dalek in the Space Museum and thought that it was cute. She hasn't actually seen them in action and doesn't really know what to expect. So having her be the one to witness their ruthlessness was was kind of a cool way to introduce her to the Daleks. Mm. Now, for the audience, it wasn't as fun because the director is not good <laughs> right it's a little bit confusing what happens when the when uh the iridians are killed 
just because the shot isn't lined up right. Yeah. So the execution leaves a little something to be desired. Richard Martin has never found a shot he couldn't mess up. (laughs) So then the Daleks surround the TARDIS, fire on it, but nothing happens. So they just guard it instead. And Vicky climbs back down into the uh, underground. Meanwhile, the elders have replied to the Daleks and let them know that they will be handing over the prisoners at Last Sons. Dun, dun, dun. At this point, Vicky is grabbed by an Iridian, and she's brought to where the Doctor and Barbara are. And Vicky hits the one who has grabbed her. And note how he writhes around a bit, then suddenly gets better and sneaks out of frame. <laughs> I enjoyed yeah, that little I didn't exchange. see that. <laughs> but yeah, she tells Barbara and the Doctor about Ian and the TARDIS. And says that she knows how to get back there. At this point, the wall behind Barbara collapses, and the Meyer Beast sort of Kool Aid mans his way through. <laughs> <laughs> it grabs Barbara and then grabs an Iridian. There's a bunch of chaos. Barbara manages to get free, and she tries to help the Iridian, but the doctor pulls her away. And one reviewer says that this scene is shot so badly that it kind of looks like she's throwing the Iridian to the beast. Yeah, I was I was very confused about a lot of these things. I, I, it, it seemed to me like Barbara reached through the wall and grabbed and pulled out the Meyer beast. <laughs> and then, yes, threw an Iridian to the beast later. I'm like, what, what is Barbara's plan here? Hmm. <laughs> I figured it out like by the end of the scene, but in the middle of it, I was very confused. The the moment we saw that like bricked up wall, it was yeah. clear that those things were made of foam and that yeah. wall was coming down. So, oh. you know, we have that one moment which I actually thought was kind of a cool visual where she looks like she's getting like there's that this one scene in in um Shaun of the Dead where somebody's pulled back out through a window. Um they, they do stuff like that in, in zombie movies, so it had that horror movie vibe, but then the action really breaks down because, you know, of inept directing. Yeah. We also get, like, a little bit too long on, like, this weird undulating Meyer Beast on top yeah. of the Iridian. <laughs> Who, I think the Meyer Beast just consumes that Iridian, so I think that's our fourth Iridian ding this story. Oh, he's dead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's done for. So while all this is going on, Ian has awoken, and he pokes his head out that hole and sees the Daleks, the TARDIS, and all that. He learns that the prisoners have escaped, and that the Iridians have been given one hour to recapture them. Which I totally didn't get, right? Because like, the threat is that they'll just destroy the whole city. And if they can do that, why don't they just destroy the whole city with everybody in it? Because then there wouldn't be a story. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Nation doesn't think of logic like that. I, I appreciated that the makeup department had made a smear of blood on the left side of Ian's face. I thought that was pretty hmm. cool. Speaking of special effects, um, briefly back to the Meyer Beast, which is clearly a large octopus. Like, 
I was wondering, did they get that made special for the series? Probably not. Otherwise, they would have made it something a little more alien than just an octopus. But if they just <laughs> picked it up at your local large octopus store, like, why were <laughs> these being made before? What else are they used in? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a random pop that they had or if it was just like, eh, make some sort of random creature. Uh, octopus? Yeah, that sounds good. Rubber stamp. It could be either one, really. Or, you know, maybe they did have it made special for them, but they figured if it was a, an existing Earth beast, they could, it would have some resale value, maybe. <laughs> Possibly. I mean, if you make a prop, you always want to be able to use it again later. Mm-hmm. One of the Daleks suggests that the humans might come back here to the TARDIS, which seems like a really good idea, so of course the Daleks only leave one of them to guard it. The crew ends up reuniting, and Ian has a plan. First step one, he wants Barbara and Vicky to get outside, get to the ridge, then nip into it, which he has to explain to Barbara means the TARDIS. Oh, and Ian also wants to borrow one of Barbara's cardigans. Yeah, she's like, again? Yeah, <laughs> and Ian's like, "It's not. F- it's for the Dalek, not for me. It's not for eating." <laughs> yes, <laughs> Ian also wants to borrow the Doctor's coat, so Ian plans to lure the Dalek into a trap and get it f- to fall into the hole. And this basically involves Ian and the Doctor spending about the next five minutes just tossing sand onto the clothes for some reason. (laughs) It was a good plan. Like, I feel like Ian frequently, or maybe always, has good strategies, and he thinks of them pretty quickly, too. The trap was was better, like, when he actually made it than when he first proposed it. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is really dumb. Um, But then when he started creating it it was like oh okay i can see how this could work of course they decide to lure the dalek over by like (laughs) popping up over the ridge and dodging death beams so i don't think that's probably the most effective way to do it just going woohoo (laughs) anti and even vicky tries to join in the fun but barbara doesn't let her (laughs) and they're assuming apparently correctly that the dalek's would not understand human psychology well enough to notice that it's a trap, like that that's not how they'd be behaving unless they were setting a trap for them. Yeah. But they know enough alien psychology to enslave various races and like manipulate them into uh, digging out the TARDIS and they're, they're smart in various ways. Yet, even though they understand the strategy of traps and deception and such, apparently they are gullible enough or don't understand humans enough that you who look over here is not something that arouses (laughs) any suspicion. (laughs) So yeah, basically the Dalek rolls over and falls into the hole. So I guess (laughs) ding for a Dalek. I I don't know if he's dead, but he's not coming out of there. (laughs) Once that's all done, they rush into the TARDIS on a side that happens to have no door, by the way. 
<laughs> as the as the other Daleks have returned and starts to fire on them. The TARDIS vanishes, and the Daleks declare that their final termination is still inevitable. They chant some more and return to the TARDIS. They are to be pursued through all eternity and exterminated. <laughs> that was a very accurate accent there. Yes. So we move on to episode three, Flight Through Eternity. And like with other episodes with names like this, this one seems to last an eternity. <laughs> I, w- I was gonna, going to mention here, like, we're, we're only talking about the first three of this six-part serial today. But the first two episodes have a very different feeling than this third episode. Yeah. Um, the first two, I actually kind of got a, a Western vibe. Maybe that's just because they're like... In a desert? The, maybe it's because they're in a desert. But I think the real thing was that the Daleks are using the local populace to turn over the hero, mm. you know? It, it feels like an old spaghetti western kind of plot where, you know, the, the villains ask everybody in town to turn on the sheriff or something like that. The, these ones, I definitely got that Keys of Marinus vibe. We're just going to keep on jumping. Yep. So, yeah, in the TARDIS, they're celebrating their escape, having a bit of fun. I think the doctor makes a joke about trying a pate of Dalek and Meyer Beast. I couldn't understand what he was saying because he just like did a whole bunch of French babble. <laughs> but then the time path detector, something else we've never seen before and probably will never see again, starts to beep. The doctor also mentions that it's been in the ship since I constructed it, but I don't remember it registering before, which yeah. makes you kind of wonder why it's built <laughs> into the ship anyway. If if it just never goes off. Well, I mean, it, it, it's important to know if someone's traveling the same route through time as you are because probably they're chasing you. So, like, maybe he anticipated a situation like this? Possibly. Maybe he, maybe he went back in time and made himself anticipate a situation like <laughs> this. Well, and who knows? Maybe his check engine light has never gone off either. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, basically it's telling them that there's another time machine following them. We get our little kaleidoscope effect with our jaunty music as the TARDIS and the DARDIS fly through the time vortex. On the Dardis, they lock their tracking devices as they try to figure out how long it'll be before they catch up to the Tardis, and a very slow Dalek attempts to do some math. Uh, you said math, right? Not meth. <laughs> yes. I wasn't sure. I mean, the time stream is pretty funkadelic. <laughs> on the Tardis, Barbara has put on a brand new cardigan. Because, as Ian says, she can't be without her battle dress. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> is this when they're eating those guava sticks? Yeah. Well, it was just like a really random thing. <laughs> yeah. Some random time food. <laughs> Sounds really good. <laughs> In- enjoy your tortoise turd. Oh, God. <laughs> 
So Ian wants to stay and fight if the doctor can't shake them off, while Vicky says, why don't we just keep moving, but for how long? But the doctor's not having any success in eluding them. He says, apparently it takes about 12 minutes for the TARDIS computers to reorientate itself. So that's how much time they have before they can go again after they land. And they're about to land again. But where? Here, uh, on top of the uh, Empire State Building, you're on the uh, 102nd uh, story above the ground level. At a height of uh, 1,473 feet. Uh, This is the uh, tallest building, the tallest structure in the entire world. We cut to the Statue of Liberty. New York City. Get a rope. Various images of the city. We go to the Empire State Building. Or what is presumably the Empire State Building, despite the fact that this building has brick walls and the Empire State Building does not. (laughs) (laughs) But you know it's New York (laughs) because you've got a guide at the top. See, that's better than his accent. Like my immediate his accent was bad. My immediate thought was like, is this like a British person who's been told to do New York accent? Right, and I he's just like, it was. yeah, this is a uh, New York uh, uh, building here, and uh, uh, the uh, the buildings. I, I like, I can't even do it as badly as he did it because every time I want to do New York a New York accent, it sounds mildly credible, and I <laughs> I can't even describe this guy's accent. No, this guy was definitely a caricature, but I was getting a real Columbo energy from him. That is precisely what I wrote down. I was waiting for him <laughs> to ask somebody one more question. <laughs> I didn't even see it in your notes. Your notes and my notes just matched up. <laughs> now, did you, did you see a Dalek around here? It's just one. Did you see a robot? Yeah. Oh, now come on, wait a minute. I just bet you folks are from Hollywood. You're making some kind of motion picture. Now, now that's it, ain't it? No, it ain't. Hey, I mean, it's just come on. Tell me. Your secret will be safe. Yes, sir, a real safe. A secret. Sure, I've seen this trick before. Great long police cars coming out of town, little wooden sheds. <laughs> I saw you come out of there with my own eye. You just ain't going to make it back in again. <laughs> so, yeah, this guy's giving a tour. The tour group moves on, but one man stays behind. And this man is Morden Dill our comedy yokel. Oh. It was so painful to watch. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I I was impressed that he had like a little handheld video camera in 1965. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if it would have been a camera or a regular camera. I don't know exactly what. My grandmother had one of those. I don't know how it worked. He said a word that sounded something like celluloid. Yeah, I'm going to get this on. <sighs> I'm sorry. I can't. I, I refuse to even participate in trying to do his accent because it was nope. just so painful, so insulting. As a as a West Virginian, especially, and his his, <laughs> his body language and like his whole his whole act was like some bizarre stereotype that I haven't even really seen exactly like that before. I I assumed that everyone there was just British and was making it up on the spot without having 
ever been to the U.S. or having an accent trainer or watching any American movies recently. <laughs> or knowing what America was. <laughs> I mean, like, I guess there's just a lot of speed in Alabama. Like, he was yeah. just so just like, oh, and it was just like, he is so jerky and in every way terrible. <laughs> just over the top stupidity, which like really rubbed me the wrong way, where it's like, everything had to, uh, that came out of his mouth had to be something like, well, we sure don't have that back in Alabama. It was very Looney Tunes. Or, you know, when Barbara, when the TARDIS lands, Barbara exits and exclaims, you're from Earth. And he responds, no, ma'am, I'm from Alabama. <laughs> Hardy har. So, yeah. Then others start coming out of the TARDIS and we get a really terrible scene with Morden here until Ian thankfully points out, if we stay here, innocent people are going to die, so let's leave. They all go, and the TARDIS vanishes. I was going to say, as much as I wasn't really a fan of Morton Dill, I did not want to get to see him, like, murdered. Yeah. <laughs> There's also the question of, you know, Ian and Barva made it to New York, in 1966, their whole goal this whole time has sort of been to get home. So you would have think they would have said, well, we're taking the steers, <laughs> stairs. See you later, Doc. <laughs> well, actually, the thing that I thought was wild is um, Vicky says, oh, it's ancient New York. Yeah. Because, of course, she's from the future. And also, she mentions that it was annihilated. Right. Yeah, by the Daleks when they invaded which is, like, really dark. Yeah. So, yeah, the TARDIS arrives pretty much as soon as the TARDIS leaves. Hello, uncomfortable stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now we get a scene with Morden Dill and the Daleks with him saying howdy and trying to shake their plunger. Ugh. The Daleks ask where the time travelers were, and Dill just says, they just left, mimicking their voice. Which, if I was That's a... pretty good. If I was a Dalek, I just would have murdered him right then and there. But they just enter the Dardis and leave. And here is where Mart Morden just goes kind of nuts and starts stomping around until the tour returns. And they run off to get a cop to look after this nutter. This went way too long. Yes, it did. Although apparently in the novel, then it gets into the fact that Morden Dill then spends the rest of his life in an insane asylum. <laughs> yeah, now that's dark. But oh, like, wow. I guess the most surprising thing to me is like, there's a novel of this? Like, yeah, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> Somebody put this to paper and expounded on it? Oh, my God. <laughs> they made up a whole backstory for Morton Dill. <sighs> yep. They gave him a name because I don't think he, I think he might have one in the credits, but... <laughs> Oh, my yeah. God, that's right. They gave him a name and everything. Oh, yeah. man. He had hopes and dreams. Man, yep. I just imagine somebody at a typewriter just like, oh, God, please kill me. <laughs> Back on the TARDIS, the doctor's working on some device to help them fight the Daleks. But they're going to land before he's able to finish it. 
we cut to a ship, or at least a model of one. <laughs> it's only a model. This is that jaunty sea jazz. <laughs> and the TARDIS lands on the ship's deck. Barbara wants to have a look around because apparently she's a big fan of sailing ships and almost immediately gets grabbed by somebody because if you're just a random person who shows up on a ship, they're going to assume you're a stowaway. Was this guy the first mate? Uh, they identified him as Richardson and he seemed to be pretty close with the captain. Yes, I believe he was the Seems first like mate. It. And they're apparently sailing a little bit off the Azores. Yep. Vicky exits the TARDIS, sees what's going on, and she grabs something. Meanwhile, Ian's in the TARDIS and is looking really seasick. The doctor says, okay, we're ready to move on. And so he sends Ian out to get Vicky and Barbara. Oh, God. On the outside, Vicky has snuck up on the sailor and conks him in the head, helping Barbara. I really do feel like she's just a cartoon character half yeah, the time. Yeah, she is. So when they hear somebody else coming, Vicky hides. Of course, it's Ian who is promptly hit over the head by Vicky. <laughs> so they help him get back to the ship as he's goofily stumbling about in yet another comedy scene. I wonder when slapstick of the sort where, you know, you get hit on the head and you're immediately unconscious and then you regain consciousness later with no lasting effects. Like when that became popular, probably like hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. But it's so inaccurate. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the TARDIS leaves pretty quickly. With that guy coming to and seeing it vanish. Well, and then he 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 tells somebody that he wonders if it's the white Barbary terror or something yeah. like that. I had to look it up because I couldn't quite understand what he was saying. Which apparently they're using here as some sort of ghostly spirit. But in reality, we're pirates. Ah, Yeah, I, I couldn't tell, like... Barbary is obviously the coast of North Africa, but um, I was getting all sorts of stuff about the Barbary pirates. I was like, (laughs) is that even a thing? Yeah. The first mate goes and tells the captain about the stowaway, and the captain wants them found as long as they don't disturb his wife and child who happen to be aboard. It's at this point where the Dardis arrives, and the sailors all start panicking when they see the Daleks. As the Daleks are just going like, where are the time travelers? Sailors start jumping overboard, including the captain's wife and child. So let's just give a big old ding for a bunch of sailors, a woman, and a baby. (laughs) The child was a lot younger than I thought the child was going to be. So there's one person still on the ship as the Daleks search around. And he goes and runs off a ship as a Dalek follows him right off the end of the ship as well. I I thought that whole thing was pretty funny, like especially (laughs) the Dalek following him. But even all the people jumping off, you know, (laughs) it was funny. The best part of it is that when the Dalek hits the water, the top of its, the (laughs) turret comes off. Yeah. <laughs> no, the best part of it is the human scream that the Dalek makes yeah. as it falls. <laughs> that was pretty great. It's like, ah! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was, 
I rewound that several times, both for the scream and to see if I could like catch some sort of like view of the inside of the doll. Like they cut it like pretty quickly, but uh, that scream is just great. Like it, 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 <laughs> the thing is, is it, it it only has like just the tiniest little hint of like the the modulation sound effect that they use. So it totally feel it totally sounds like they were just like lazy and like cut in somebody off screen, just going, "Oh no!" And like it's so good. <laughs> After this, the camera just spends the next, I don't know, 50 or 60 years panning around to various places on the ship. You know, I I thought that was like fair because I was wondering if there were more people there and eventually became clear that it wasn't and that it was important that there wasn't. One thing I saw that was interesting, it was some sort of machine and I realized it looked like a heavy-duty sewing machine. It sure did. And I I was like, I'd never thought about that before, but it would make sense to have a sewing machine on the ship to mend sails, like once sewing machines had been invented and such. But I've never thought about that before, probably since sewing machines were invented until sailboats, like with sails, stopped being popular. I, I don't know. Must have been pretty common, I guess. Mm. This this was also a really interesting time in history because usually when I think of the age of sail, it is much earlier than these guys were. Right. Mm. Yeah, because we kind of have an idea of exactly when this was. Mm-hmm. Since through all the panning, we learned that this ship was the Mary Celeste. Now, Ian noted it, um, but I had never heard of the Mary Celeste uh, it's apparently a pretty famous ghost ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to look it up too. I had I had heard of it, and maybe I don't know. Maybe that's just because I'm old. I definitely like rolled my eyes at that a little bit. I was like, oh. And then they they like they double establish it too. They hit you over the head with yes. it. It's like it it's it's all it goes over the plaque and it says Mary Celeste, and you're like, uh, and I was like, oh, okay. And then, like, they go back to the ship, and Ian's like, that was the Mary Celeste. And then she's like, oh, the Mary Celeste. It's like, yes, it was Mary Celeste. It wasn't cool the first time you did it. (laughs) Yep. So, basically, all that panning was pointless. I thought it was cool. I really liked that part. (laughs) Well, it does, I think, fit in very well with the whole Dennis Spooner agenda thing. When you consider that this is him basically saying... Here are aliens being responsible for an actual historical event. Yeah, this is how history works. I appreciated it, but I could have also just done with either seeing the plaque or hearing them being like, I think that was the Mary Celeste. I thought the plaque was great. Like, it didn't have to be said. Both is too much. Right. Well, and especially like, had they just said it, that would have felt like super lazy because it's like oh that was the Mary Celeste that could have you know but like having the kind of wordlessly having the plaque I thought was kind of cool but then they're just like nah don't just just in case you you missed (laughs) that or in case you can't read or in case you were in the other room getting a newspaper you know don't miss this I I could allow that I mean like if you wanted to duck out of this episode at some point when they're just like wordlessly rolling over the deck of an empty ship. That's a good time to go get the newspaper. These are British people we're talking about. I also, I remember when, like, cathode ray tube monitors for TVs. I mean, I don't remember black and white TV, but TV quality was not good. And so I'm sure that even seeing them on computer screens with the poor quality filming in black and white, we're still seeing it more clearly than people would have been seeing on it on their television sets when it was aired originally. So you couldn't read a lot of stuff very well 
back then on TV. That is true. I I could see that, especially if you have one of the smaller TVs, you might not have been able to read the plaque. But anyway, the Daleks are continuing to follow them. And the doctor says that their lead time is now down to eight minutes with the Daleks closing in. And the episode ends with more traveling in the vortex. And that is also where we are going to be ending our uh, journey through this story for this episode. So I guess we'll do um, some midpoint reactions so far. So far, are you thinking this is leading towards a thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a mess sort of story? So, Bay, I'll let you go first. So here's my, my main reaction to these is that everything just seems way too coincidental. My, my biggest problem with this story is so much hinges on stuff that fe- it doesn't feel like it's been properly set up, you know, or, or it um, feels like dumb luck. They get a time television just and t- turn into the exact moment they can see the Dalek plot just as the Daleks set out to catch them, right? Mm-hmm. Ian and Vicky make it into the under- underground tunnels just on the same day, like a f- maybe a few hours before the airlock is to be detonated. You know, um, there's there's just too much that feels like bad writing for me to really give this more than a meh. I there there were some really cool ideas that I that I enjoyed and I love the Daleks. Uh I'll probably give it somewhere in the like thumbs up to meh range because I don't think that I could give it a thumbs down, but I mean it's the direction and writing um made some of it less enjoyable for me. I do like hearing the the Daleks be like eradicate, obliterate, annihilate, <laughs> and just about everything up till they said exterminate. Because I I played that clip for Maggie and she's like, "This isn't right. They're supposed to be shouting exterminate." <laughs> Julia, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, so I feel like I really like world building and strategy. And I would say the show was great on the world building or, you know, decent on the world building at first. I liked the whole story with the planet that was getting hotter and the seas had dried up and, you know, all of the story and props that came with that. So I thought that was a good start. But then when they started the chase... I really would have liked several minutes to have been devoted to brainstorming a strategy for how to evade and or defeat the Daleks. And, you know, there's sort of, they talked about how it takes 12 minutes to recalibrate the TARDIS and how that's diminishing. And so that was useful information. But in my mind, alarm bells are going off. This is the number one priority. Everything is for naught if you don't find a way to get away from the Daleks. And they didn't seem to be taking that seriously enough. So to me, that was really a flop. Ian seems to be so great at strategies like the the jackets and sand and making the Dalek fall down, but I don't see him devoting as much effort to long-term planning and strategy. 
And who knows what the doctor's thinking because he rarely shares it because he doesn't think anyone's worthy of coming, like being in on his plans. So I would say this is deeply meh for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did like the ship. The ship was a high point. The Empire State Building was a low point. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. and, and I like the Beatles. I mean, but who doesn't like the Beatles? Yeah. So Andy, what do you... Uh... What, what did you think? Okay, so I like the chase angle, right? I like that they're slowly losing their edge, their time on each jump, eventually forcing a confrontation. I think that's pretty cool. That's a cool idea. The, the kind of chase through time just more broadly, I think is a pretty cool idea. Uh, the execution's just not good so far, though. I'm hoping mm. for a lot more in the second half. Right now, it's just way too keys of Marinus for me. Um, mm. Way too overall goofy. So I'm I'm going to refrain from offering up my judgments quite yet, but it it's not leaning great. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't looking good. <laughs> yeah, you know, this story, as Bay said, there's a lot of ideas here and terry nation is really an ideas man in my reading for this story there is one review that i think sums him up perfectly as a writer terry nation is a genius who is content to be a hack (laughs) yeah that's perfect that that is the perfect description of terry nation he's just happy throwing in action without really thinking of plots He's happy giving us interesting worlds and interesting ideas like what if the Daleks were on a ship or, you know, here's this cool beast in this cave system. What would happen then? But he doesn't really think of things like, you know, these characters need a strategy to get out of this situation or can you really have a chase between two time machines or things like that? <laughs> I, I just, he's, he's got a whole drawer full of ideas, right? Yeah. But he's a lazy guy. I yeah. feel like part of the problem is that the, the Daleks was a very early serial. And so once it got popular... Nobody would question him. Nobody would like chime in and say, hey, maybe this isn't a good idea. Or have you thought of this? Like if he had someone to balance that out, yeah, you know, um, these could be a lot tighter. But whenever you have someone who... Let's call it the George Lucas effect. Exactly. You get someone who has free reign over some some property or something like that. And nobody to, you know, question, is this really a good idea? That's when things start to go off the rails a little bit. Yeah. And of course, the other half of the, you know, one-two double punch you get here is Richard Martin, somebody who is just really bad at shooting things. He's, he comes up with interesting effect ideas but he cannot shoot an action scene to save his life. And so when you have a guy who writes nothing but action scenes combined with a director who can't shoot action, (laughs) you're going to run into some issues. (laughs) And that's what you get here. And yeah, this uh, is definitely well on its way to being a mess sort of episode at best. You know, if at the end of this serial... 
the beetles pop out of the top of those Daleks and they all fly away in the yellow submarine, <laughs> then I'm giving this thing a thumbs up. <laughs> yep. That would change things, yes. Maybe a yellow submarine is where all the people jumping off the ship went to. Yes. <laughs> They're all there in a yellow submarine. Yes. So that's it for this episode. Next time, we'll talk about the last three episodes of The Chase. I'd like to thank Julia for joining us. And we'll see you again next time, Julia, for the last parts. Andy, Bay, say your goodbyes, your final goodbyes. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And we will see you in the next half of the serial. I'm just going to slink back to my subterranean city and uh, wait but I'll see you there. Like us, share, subscribe, and I guess go and listen to some classical music until next time. Good night.